0: We're going to be in Daniel chapter 10. can flip open there. Father, I thank you for good conversations. I thank you for good food and a great place to meet. Thank you for a day that each one of us has seen. You supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. And so we say thank you. Thank you for safety. Thank you for relationships. Thank you for love. Thank you for your spirit, Lord, that is even now, even this day, even this moment, holding evil at bay. Thank you for your word. We can gain insight. It's sharp. It's powerful. It discerns. It's alive. So tonight, Lord... May we be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. May our hearts burn within us because of Scripture. May the kindling that is the Bible be ignited by your spirit in every heart we ask. So speak, may we listen. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, who's seen the movie The Three Amigos? Okay. My favorite scene is they're using real bullets, right? You know that scene? If you don't know the movie The Three Amigos, it's set like a hundred years ago, and they're like in a silent film, and they do these, this little routine against the bullies every time, and they always win, and they always, you know... They're the good guys. They always win. Well, their show gets canceled and they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? There's this little tiny town in Mexico that they'd get the broadcast and so they'd watch the show every week and they thought it was real. They thought this is news, not a Hollywood show. They're like, yeah, the heroes. Well, they had a really, really bad bully who was bullying them. So right about the time their show gets canceled, they get a call from this city in Mexico and they're like, come down here and help us. They're assuming, oh, they want us to go down there and do our little song and dance. So they're great. So they go down there and the bullies show up. And so there's just this classic conversation, right? They go marching up to them in their, like, gaudy outfits. And they're, like, all dirty, like, chew spits coming out the side of their mouth. And they're just like, Ugh, no teeth. And they're like, okay, tell us that we're going to die like dogs, Huh? No, say you're going No, we will not die like dogs. And they do their whole like running around thing. And so the guy's like, I like them. They're funny. Just kill one of them. <laughs> so the guy's like, bang. And then just clips. I think it's Dusty Bottoms or whatever his name is, right? He falls on the ground. He's like, oh, What happened to you? What happened to you? He gets up. I don't know. No. <gasps> They're using real bullets. <laughs> Daniel 10 is. They're using real bullets. It's a glimpse behind the game that sometimes life can be to a reality of very powerful beings. That somehow you have an angel not able to get through something for three weeks because of a power over Babylon where he has to call in reinforcements just to be able to get a message through to one of God's people. How strange is that, right? It's, they're using real bullets. So the last three chapters of Daniel are pretty like they're using real bullets. And it gives us insight into both the physical manifestations of this realm like what you see in chapter 10, as well as what God is doing about it. It's a fascinating section. It gets very historical and we'll see that. But to place it in context, if you're here last week, Daniel had read this prophecy in Jeremiah and the prophecy said, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Well, he'd been in Babylon for like 67 years. So he's like, cool, three more years and we get to go home. And then God comes to him and says, actually, it's going to be much harder than that. It's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 times seven years. 490 years, in order to accomplish what needs to be accomplished to do what I really want to do. It's much harder than you think. So that was how that chapter ended. So Daniel would kind of be like, well, that's a bummer. I thought we were almost done. And now I'm being told, no, actually, you'll never see this. It's going to be much harder. All right, so that's chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. "'Nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. "'On the 24th day of the first month, "'as I was standing on the bank of the great river, "'that is the Tigris, "'I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, "'a man clothed in linen "'with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. "'His body was like barrel, "'his face like the appearance of lightning, "'his eyes like flaming torches.' was fearfully changed. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? (laughs) I was looking really good, and then all of a sudden it changed. And I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So, around 536 BC is when this takes place. How old is Daniel? Daniel. He's over 80. Minimally, he's 85. He's somewhere 80 plus years old. Is he still useful to the kingdom? Oh my goodness. 10, 11, 12, right? It always saddens me to talk to people and for them to say, man, I used to be involved or I used to do this or I used to go, whatever it was, I used to. Like, really? Really? What are you doing now? Like, what's the excuse? It can't be that you're too old, because Daniel was probably old. Anyone over eighty-five here? Okay, no one has it. All right, so Chuck can he can take a breather. (laughs) The rest of us cannot. Right? Old. We need more Caleb's who's like I'm eighty-four, and I'm still strong, and I'm still going. John Wesley. He is said he was a circuit preacher for a long time. It was said that he logged 300,000 miles on horseback. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's, that's hell to me right there. He preached 40,000 sermons. And at 80 years old, he complained that he was slowing down and he could only preach two sermons a day. That's a phenomenal guy, all right? Just going for it. So here's what we know. Probably why Daniel's mourning at this point. In 538 BC, there was an edict. You guys can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back. Very few people did it. They were happy in Babylon. We don't want to go back there. And so Daniel would hear word back every once in a while from Jerusalem. And the situation there was really bad. So his heart is breaking over his city. And so he begins to do this fasting and this praying. And it's a limited fast. He's just not eating the good stuff, right? He's like giving up chocolate, which would be really serious. I'm not going to eat chocolate. That's really serious. I go on a limited fast and it's, I don't eat kale or Brussels sprouts. I've been on it for a long time. (laughs) And then it says he, he, he didn't eat meat. So those that say that Daniel was a vegan, no. Just in chapter one, he didn't eat meat because it had been sacrificed to idols and he wasn't gonna partake in that. But once he was able to get his own meat, he, I'm sure, enjoyed a nice steak every once in a while, right? So he starts to just pray. He starts to fast because he's bummed. What do you do when you're bummed? you pray and fast. I think a lot of us, and I'll speak for myself, complain. That's what we do. I think if we spent more time praying, we'd have a lot less things to complain about. Daniel's a great model. He hears this. He, it's, it's hurting him. He's, he just says, I'm going to spend some time praying and fasting. And then guess who appears? No one's exactly sure, but I would say this, it's Jesus. And if you compare Daniel 10 to Revelation 1, which we know is Jesus, the Alpha and Omega there, there's just so many similarities. You can do that on your own. So for me, it seems like it's Jesus, right? Like there's similar, like arms of bronze, you know, just big old, it's Jesus. When you think about Jesus, what image comes to your mind? It's the European picture of him, right? The Western European. Was Jesus Western European? Right? Blonde hair. So Tom Skinner has this great, he, he ends up getting saved later on, but he has this great thing he talks about. When he was a little boy, grew up in a really, really rough neighborhood in New York, just hardcore neighborhood. And he said the first time he saw the picture of Jesus, he called it the moist skinned, blonde, blue eyed Jesus. He said, I looked at Jesus and I thought, that dude wouldn't last 10 minutes in my neighborhood. But if you read what Jesus actually is, in Daniel chapter 10, in Revelation chapter one, that's a very different Jesus. And Daniel, who's seen all kinds of visions, he's seen beasts come out of the ground, he's seen just terrorizing things. Guess what happens when he sees Jesus and hears his words? He just falls down, just does a face plant, Right? Like the strength goes out from him. It's like, I imagine it like, have you ever slept on your arm wrong and it's asleep? It's just like a a pen. His whole body goes like that, just clunk right on his face, right? People are like, I'd love to see Jesus. I'm not sure you would because you might fall face first as well. It would be a different kind of, it's what happens to John too. So it's an other kind of thing. It's not the moist skin, blonde hair, blue eyed person that we have in pictures. It's Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords. So he goes out. And then, verse 10, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. (laughs) I love that. Stop your face planting. (laughs) And now I've And now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come. He wakes up. Um, it appears that Jesus has gone back. And this is Gabriel, the angel, who will now begin to tell him what's happened, right? And Gabriel says this, the moment you started to pray, your prayer was heard. The moment you prayed. God doesn't miss a prayer. Like we would be lucky to be able to listen to a conversation and eavesdrop on one other conversation at the same time, right? And we try that, but does that work very well? Mm -mm, Like we tune one out. God has no problem with that. I love Revelation 8 where it says, God just says, shh. The saints are praying. There's a silence in heaven when the saints... Pray. That's how it, important it is. And so he prays and he doesn't stop. It's not like he prayed one day and stopped, gave up. He kept praying 21 days straight. Do we do that? Do we really persevere in prayer? Daniel does. If you read Luke 18, it appears Jesus cares about how we pray. So he says there in Luke 18, verse 1: Men ought always to pray and not to faint. And then he gives this story. He's like, there was this widow and she had a case and she brought it before an unrighteous judge and this unrighteous judge wanted nothing to do with this case. I don't want to deal with that. Don't. And he kept just putting her off, but guess what? She kept coming every single day with her case, every single day with her case. And finally, this unrighteous judge is like, I could care less about this, but this lady's not going to give me a break, so I'm going to deal with it. And Jesus says, that's how you ought to pray. And then he gives this little cryptic Ending to that story, goes, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? A tie-in between how we pray and our faith. That prayer is maybe the barometer of our faith. If I really have faith in God, wouldn't I be asking him? Wouldn't I be talking to him? Wouldn't I be praying to him? That prayer is our barometer. So Jesus says, that barometer, is it going to be signifying faith in my people when I return? Daniel prays. I love faithful prayers, but I love God even more. Like one of the best examples of someone who has given up on prayer and God hasn't is Zechariah in Luke chapter two. So he and his wife are old. I don't know how old they are, 85, 120, they're old. And this angel shows up to Zachariah and says, your prayers have been heard, you're gonna have a kid. How many years had it been since they had stopped praying that prayer? 60 years? 50 years? I can just imagine him like, what prayer? Man, I'm old, I don't even remember praying that prayer. Are you kidding me? But God didn't forget. I remember your prayer. And I'll answer it at the right time. And then verse 14 is a real key, and it'll keep you on track, I think, because it says this, that this vision, chapter 10, 11, and 12, it's for who? Your people. It's not for America. you going can find USA in here. It's for your people. It's for the Jewish people. It's for the nation of Israel, that this is for your people. And you have to put everything through that lens. All right, so verse 15, when he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. I love that. And behold, one of the likeness of a, of a children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, oh Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. He just says, man, I'm having a tough time carrying on conversation with you guys. It's like every time I start talking to you, I just pass out. Can you help me? Once again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh man, greatly loved. How many times has God said that to Daniel? Like a theme. Bro, you're loved. Bro, you're loved. Oh man, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your So he says, listen, I got to talk to you a little bit. I'm going to leave. i got to go back and fight this power over Babylon. And when we're done with him, we have this other power over Greece that we have to take care of as well. How crazy is that? Like we just get this little glimpse at times behind the veil of whatever it is, that different dimension. I think if we saw any more, all of us would be committed to the psych ward. People think we're nuts. When you start talking, like, what in the world? And Sunday, we looked a little bit at this. And when I think about demons or that kind of topic, I think of it like this. I think of it like a skunk. Does anyone go skunk hunting? Anyone in here? Like, dude, today I'm going to go hunt a skunk. Why don't you go hunt, hunting skunks? Because it stinks. It's just, it's just gross. It's a mess. You just don't do it, Right? When do, you, when, do you have to, when do you have to deal with a skunk? When it's under your house, right? You have no choice then, because the stench is filling your home. To me, that's like the demonic realm. Like, I, I'm not going to go hunting. I'm not going to go looking for it. It's like a skunk. Just leave it alone. But if it comes into our house, the house of Edgewater, okay, now we must deal with it. So that, that's kind of the way I see it personally. And there are people that get way too, I don't even know what it is, so weird about it. And they like want to go attack. No, you don't do that. Jesus does. If it comes into our house. Yes, we pray and we seek and we do what we need to do, but I'm not hunting it. So uh, just a way to think about it, right? So chapter 11, we'll try to get to verse 35. That's kind of the break. Um, It's history. This is a history lesson. But for Daniel, it was prophecy. And it's about his people, verse 14. This is about the Jews. This isn't about anything else, right? So there's this, this, the northern king and the southern king, and they go back and forth, northern king, southern king. And what it is is this. It's the area of Syria, and it's the area of Egypt. Area of Syria, king of the north. Area of Egypt, king of the south. What lies right in between those two countries? Israel. So these two powers have problems. And guess what happens when they have a problem? They go to war and guess what they do when they go to war? They trample across Israel like time and time and time again. Right, so they just (sighs) This chapter 11 is so right, like it just matches with history, what we know about history that it's chapter 11 that causes most critical scholars of the Bible to say, there's no way that was written in 538 BC. There's no way. And the reason why they say that is not because they have some scholarly evidence for it. It's because they have a presupposition against the supernatural. And they take that, that presupposition against the supernatural and they say, no way. don't believe it i just look at him here and say how can you have a presupposition against the supernatural you're telling me that came from nothing and all of a sudden we have that like there's some crazy stuff very smart people believe you're insane i'm sorry (laughs) right the big bang really really okay there you have it so it's amazing We'll read it. It's history. Um, why is it here, though? It's to strengthen you and me so that we know that God has a plan. Like, God is never like, oh, me, what am I going to do? I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe that person or this he, God never does that, right? It's God saying, listen, I have a plan. I'm never surprised, And it fills in what we call the silent years. You know what the silent years are of the Bible? From the book of Malachi, written about the 400 BC, until the book of Matthew, there was no new prophetic words given to Israel. So we call that the silent years. But we're actually given what's gonna happen in their silent years right here in chapter 11. So it kind of fills that in. So let's jump in. We'll do it pretty quickly. Verse one. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia. There's going to be more kings, Medo-Persian kings. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. That's Artaxerxes, the same Artaxerxes that Esther marries. And when he has become stronger through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece, that a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom will be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Okay, so... Medo-Persians come, Artaxerxes, uh, he makes a mistake. He thinks he's going to go over to Greece or that region, Macedonia, and kick some tail. All he does is stir the hornet's nest. Makes it kind of like, oh, we don't like the Medo-Persians. So he does that. Well, after a while, Philip, the king, dies, and his son takes over. His name is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is like, I don't like what they did to my dad. And so there's this battle, it's a famous battle, the Battle of ISIS in 333 BC, where he, just overwhelming odds, like three to one, depending on who you read, like he should have never won this battle, routs the Medo-Persians. And he begins this conquest from Macedonia. He just sweeps in 10 years across the entire known world and takes it, right? So that's who the mighty king of verse three is. So he gets up, he's 33, and then dies in Babylon from something. Gets sick, gets poisoned, who knows. He has two sons. They're killed. So he has no, his own posterity does not take over. Who takes over? His four generals. So that's the four winds. They go out, the four generals take over. Each of them taking a chunk of this thing. So from here, it gets super complicated. So I have a slide, you can put it up. And I'll leave that up. So if that looks complicated, that's simple compared to how it could be, all right? So you can just reference this, and I'm just going to go, here's the history of what this chapter is saying took place, and it was fulfilled perfectly. You can read anything you want. If you want that slide, yeah, you can take a picture, or you can ask Josh. Maybe he'll get you one, all right? So here's what happens. His d- kingdom is divided. Two of them that are going to center on is the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucid empires, which are the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Okay, so verse five. I tried to make it even simpler, but I couldn't. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they will make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he in his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Here's what happens. There's a marriage of peace. So the king of the north, Seleucius the divorces his wife, and her name was Laodicea. There's actually a city named after her. So he divorces Laodicea, puts her away, and marries the daughter of the king of the south. Her name is Bernice. Um, she's part of the Ptolemy Empire. And now it's, hey, okay, let's have peace because we've got this marriage. Well, Ptolemy I dies. When he dies, Seleucius I says, why am I married to this lady? Puts her away, puts Bernice away, takes back, and she had a son, Bernice and her son away, his son, and takes back Laodicea, his old wife. Well, Laodicea, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She kills Bernice, kills the son, and kills the I, and she takes over. So she is quite the woman, and she just begins to rule, right? So that, that's, what, that's what just said right here. This is what happened. So but that, that whole thing causes this. Well, back down in the South, her brother's now ruling. So here's what happens, verse seven. And from a branch from her roots, right? So now you've got this same family. One shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Bernice's brother is mad. What? My sister just got killed up there. My nephew just got killed up there. He gets his armies together he goes up there, he invades the north, he defeats them, and then it says he carried their gods away. How funny is that? You stole my gods, give them back to me. (laughs) Right? If people can steal your gods, then they probably didn't work. You should just say, keep them. Those those gods didn't work. We're going to get a new god because those ones didn't work very well. All right? So, carries off all their gods, takes them back down, and they have to go try to rescue their gods. So, That puts us, verse 10. His son shall wage war. Meanwhile, they're just trampling over Israel doing this whole time, just rump, rump, rump. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall rise again a multitude greater than the first, and for some years he shall come with a great army and abundant supplies. So now, the king of the south, Ptolemy the fourth, he is a rotten, rotten guy. And that's saying something in this chapter because there's a lot of rottenness in this chapter. It's like this. So a bunch of years ago, I was given this truck. It was a 1976 GMC crew cab. It did not have a single part on that truck that was not dented. It was painted baby blue. But because it had been used as a logging rig and had like diesel and stains all over it, it was a different kind of color, a color that was just like wrong. And then it was really rusted. And so I would drive that for a while. And my wife said this. She said, that is the ugliest truck in Josephine County. I said, now that says something. If you to said it was the ugliest truck in Portland, that wouldn't be a bad truck. But the ugliest truck in Southern Oregon, Josephine County, this is a terrible truck. Her answers were pre- or answered one day when I'm driving to work and the transmission blew up. And I had to drive that giant thing backwards in reverse all the way home. It was awesome. <laughs> people were clearing the street. They would just pull off, like, what in the world is that guy? That's scary, right? It's that kind of comparison. He is rotten in a very, very, very rotten group of people. He kills his mom, he kills his wife, he kills his brother. And he is a sexual deviant, ends up getting a disease. Most people believe it's an STD and he dies. He leaves behind a six-year-old who then is on the throne, right? So Antiochus the Great is up north. He's like, oh my goodness, a six-year-old? Mm-hmm. Let's go down there. So he just goes down there and wipes out the armies of this six-year-old king, takes over, right? What does this sound like at this point? like Dallas or something, or I don't know what a, like Jersey Shores or like, it's insane, right? So history, if you read history, it's stranger than fiction. Dead serious. It's always worse than whatever you could possibly dream up. History is actually worse. So verse 14, in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. The forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and he shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Here's what happens. Kiss the Great finds it very hard to rule Egypt from Syria because eventually people start to get angry at taxes and problems and stuff like that. So they start to, uh, right? So he gives his daughter, which is what this says right here, gives his daughter in marriage to the king of the south. And he's like, okay, sweetie, you're going to be the enemy within. You'll send me what's happening there. You'll be my spy down there. The only problem is her name is Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra. You know, that comes about 150 years after this. It's the first Cleopatra. The only problem is Cleopatra falls in love with the king of the south. And so it says it became no advantage. Uh Uh-uh. She now just says, I'm not giving you any information. I'm not going to help you, dad. I'm on this team now. So he's like, oh, that makes me mad, right? So then he ends up, verse 19, going to battle with Rome. Big mistake. Rome is now ascending. They defeat Antiochus the Great. They take 20 of his nobles, his top dudes as hostages, which was very common to do. Like, if you revolt against us again, we just cut all these people's heads off. One of the hostages was a guy named... Antiochus Epiphanes. Perhaps you remember him. If you don't, we'll talk about him again because he comes up again. So he goes off to Rome for a while. Um, When Antiochus the Great goes home, the people in his hometown are so angry with him, they mob him and they kill him. Verse 19, he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. His own people just say, we're done with you, dude. You're dead. So they kill him. Um, Anyone want to be king after all this? No, thanks, man. I'll just raise a family out in the country somewhere. I do not want to be king. Verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his royal place. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant, probably the high priest. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. And he shall do, neither, do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceeding great army, But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. He shall return to his land with a great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So verse 20, there's this guy who sends a tax collector and he's killed not by battle or anger, he's poisoned. So what would happen in the old days was this. If you lost a war, you paid for it. Very different from today, where we'll pay for the war and then we'll pay to rebuild what we broke, right? It costs us double. Back in this day, if you lost the war, you're paying tribute and you're gonna pay back everything that it costs to do this war. So here's what happened. Seleucus IV, history says this. He was headed down to the temple because he's like, I need to pay for this war. I gotta pay Rome, I law. you know? I, we, got, we gotta pay some cash here. So um, he's headed to the temple He wants the gold that the temple was lined with. And as he's headed there, he goes to sleep, has a nightmare, and this nightmare, because of what he's doing, an angel flogs him. He wakes up, repents, and goes home. I wonder what angel flogged him. They probably had, I will, I will, I will. Let me do it, (laughs) right? So that doesn't happen. Verse 21, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in the north. He is not royal blood. His cousin was supposed to be the one, but he seizes the throne through lies and murder and deceit. Heads down south because Egypt is the breadbasket. Rome knew this. They had to keep Egypt because it was the breadbasket. So goes down there, defeats them, gets all this cash, brings it back up. But verse 28 says he has this problem against the Holy Covenant. And here's why. Everyone at this time was making a big deal about Antiochus Epiphanes. Oh, you're the best. Oh, you're the greatest. Oh, you're wonderful. Except for the Jews who said, no, you're not wonderful. No, you're not God. No, we don't like you. So he has this chip on his shoulder against Jews in Israel, right? So one little section and we're done. Verse 29, at that appointed time, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim, most people believe Kittim refers to Cyprus, shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate and he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I love that phrase. And the wise among the people shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits the appointed time. So Antiochus Epiphanes, here's what happens. He goes back down to Egypt. He wants some more cash. I'm going to plunder that place again. Goes down there, but this time, the ships of Kittim are there. So there was a garrison, a group of Roman soldiers with ships in Cyprus, and they come down there. And this is where we get the story, where Gaius Populius. Stands out, this old 80-year-old Roman, comes out in front of Antiochus Epiphanes with all of his might and all of his armies and says, go home. You're not allowed in here anymore. And he says, well, let me think about it. And Gaius Poppelius takes a stick and draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, you will give me your answer before you cross that line. So he's enraged. He knows he can't defeat Rome. There's no way. So he turns around, heads back, and he is raged, and he takes that rage into Jerusalem. They believe upwards of 80,000 Jews are slaughtered when he comes in there, just totally annihilates. Bad dude. If you circumcise your kid, he would take you up to the temple wall, tie the child around the neck of the mom and shove them both off, like just a brutal person. And it says those that violate the covenant verse 32, these are the people that are saying, "We're Hellenists now. So the Hellenist worldview had just permeated the world. Everyone that was in the inn had become Hellenistic. So there was Hellenistic Jews who were like, hey, we're with you. So he he takes them on his side, rewards them. It's believed by a lot of people that during this time you have the split between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That the Sadducees were the ones that were saying, hey, we'll side with you. We won't circumcise our kids. And Sadducees essentially did not believe in the supernatural. No God, no angels, no resurrection, none of that stuff. That's why people say, that's why they were so sad, you see. Yeah. Sorry, I know. It's one of those really bad ones. All right? The Pharisees were, their name literally means the separate ones. No, we are separating ourselves from Hellenism. We're separating ourselves from that. We're going to keep the covenant. We're we're those people, okay? So, Out of this, you have verses 34 and 35. There's this revolt. It's the Maccabean revolt led by Judas Maccabean, the hammer, and and they for three years just do this guerrilla warfare and they drive the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes out of Israel, cleanse the temple. The lights are lit. It's Hanukkah. It's that whole thing. It would be very similar to George Washington with the ragtag American army defeating the, the most mighty army on earth at the time, the Britons. Like, it's very similar to that. Like, whoa, we celebrate that? That's what they're celebrating right here, okay? So you read this and you're kind of like, so what? Like, why do we have all this history? Why do we have all, this? like, that's what I do. So what? I'll give you a couple things that I think. Number one, we're to know, Ephesians 1.10, that God works all things, after the counsel of his will. That we can see a bad king of the north or a bad king of the south, and we would be like, oh no, it's all right. That Revelation 5, one of the coolest scenes in the Bible, it says, up in heaven, there was this scroll and it was sealed seven times. And that scroll, it's the plan of the ages. And there's this voice that says, who is worthy to break the seals and open this thing up? Who's worthy to do this? It says, no one was found worthy. And so John the Revelator starts bawling because he knows what that means. Earth is doomed. And then it says, no, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. Right? So every eye looks for a lion and what do they find? A lamb having just been slain. And he's the one that's worthy. Why is he worried? Worthy? Because he was a lamb that just had been slain. He died And in his death, he defeated the evil dark powers. He's worthy. He can break these seals, right? So it's the same idea. There's a plan, and Jesus is able to carry this plan out, that God uses empires like Legos. I need my people to go somewhere for 70 years. Babylon had essentially 70 years of dominance. That was it, and then they're done. They're gone, We need good roads to get the gospel out. Okay, Rome comes. What did they do? Was it The Life of Brian? <laughs> you know that movie? You know? What, what it's so funny. What is that? It just, I should not mention random things. But it was like, what, what the, what, they gave us clean water and good roads, right? <laughs> what has Rome done for us? Well, clean water and good roads. That's so random. Man. Now, you know how my brain works. Pray for my wife. <laughs> right? Luke chapter 2. Jesus needs to be born in Bethlehem. Mary and Mary and Joseph are up in Nazareth. How do I get them down there? Caesar Augustus decides to tax the whole land. They're down in Bethlehem, right? Like Legos. That's what you see. So people watch the news and they freak out about something and they'll say, "Matt, I can't believe how bad it is." My answer is always this: I can't believe it's not worse. Are you kidding me? You read history, it could be so much worse. Be thankful. God's at work. He can use evil like taxes to get his will done. He'll use what he hates to get what he loves. So these kind of chapters, what they're supposed to do for us is this. He wants a redeemed people that will exist with him in Eden, a new Eden called New Jerusalem. And there's nothing that's gonna stand in the way of that. No empire, no evil, nothing. It will be done. So when we read it, we're supposed to say, "Ah, we trust Jesus." And then we go out and we do good, and we don't lose our hope in Him. Trust Jesus. Do good, hope in Him. There's nothing better than that. And so Jesus today, may we trust you. You are worthy to loose the seals. May we trust you. May we go out and do good, being salt and light, letting our good works so shine that men see them and they glorify you, our heavenly Father. And may our hope be firmly put in you, not in a government, not in an empire, not in an economy, not in a job, not in anything but you. May our hope be put in you. So may we go from here trusting, believing, hoping, and doing. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.